Would you take your Bibles with me this morning and open to Luke chapter 22? Luke chapter 22, as we continue our way through the gospel of Luke, our text this morning is Luke 22, verses 1 through 38, which, uh, if you have one of the red Bibles, Luke 22 is on page 881, 881. And I do want to read for us, uh, our text is going to be Luke 22, 1 through 38. I do want to read for us the entire text as we look at the sermon uh, text this morning. So if you're able, one more time, if you would stand so that we might honor the reading of God's holy, inspired, and inerrant word. Luke 22, verses 1 through 38. Now the feast of unleavened bread drew near, which is called the Passover. And the chief priests and the scribes were seeking how to put him to death. For they feared the people. Then Satan entered into Judas, called Iscariot, who was of the number of the twelve. He went away and conferred with the chief priests and officers how he might betray him to them. And they were glad and agreed to give him money. So he consented and sought an opportunity to betray him to them in the absence of a crowd. Then came the day of unleavened bread, on which the Passover lamb had to be sacrificed. So Jesus sent Peter and John saying, Go and prepare the Passover for us, that we may eat it. They said to him, Where will you have us prepare it? He said to them, Behold, when you have entered the city, a man carrying a jar of water will meet you. Follow him into the house that he enters. Until the master of the house, the teacher says to you, Where is the guest room, that I may eat the Passover with my disciples? And he will show you a large upper room, furnished. Prepare it there. And they went and found it, just as he had told them. And they prepared the Passover. And when the hour came, he reclined at table, and the apostles with him. And he said to them, I have earnestly desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. For I tell you, I will not eat it until it is, un until it is fulfilled in the kingdom of God. And he took a cup. When he had given thanks, he said, Take this and divide it among yourselves. For I tell you that from now on I will not drink of the fruit of the vine until the kingdom of God comes. And he took bread. When he had given thanks, he broke it and gave it to them, saying, This is my body, which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And likewise, the cup, after they had eaten, saying, This cup that is poured out for you is the new covenant in my blood. But behold, the hand of him who betrays me is with me on the table. For the Son of Man goes as it has been determined. But woe to that man by whom he is betrayed." And they began to question one another, which of them it could be who was going to do this? A dispute also arose among them as to which of them was to be regarded as the greatest. And he said to them, the kings of the Gentiles exercise lordship over them, and those in authority over them are called benefactors. But not so with you. Rather, let the greatest among you become as the youngest, and the leader as the one who serves. For who is the greater? One who reclines at table or one who, is ser one who serves? Is it not the one who reclines at table? But I'm among you as the one who serves. You are those who have stayed with me in my trials. And I assign to you as my father assigned to me a kingdom. That you may eat and drink at my table in my kingdom and sit on thrones judging the twelve tribes of Israel. Simon, Simon, behold, Satan demanded to have you that he might sift you like wheat. But I've prayed for you that your faith may not fail. And when you have turned again, strengthen your brothers. Peter said to him, Lord, I'm ready to go with you both to prison and to death. But Jesus said, I tell you, Peter, the rooster will not crow this day until you deny three times that you know me. And he said to them, when I sent you out with no money bag or knapsack or sandals, did you lack anything? They said, nothing. He said to them, But now, let the one who, is ha who has a money bag take it, and likewise a knapsack. And let the one who has no sword sell his cloak and buy one. For I tell you that the scripture must be fulfilled in me. And he was numbered with the transgressors. For what is written about me has its fulfillment. And they said, Look, Lord, here are two swords. He said to them, It is enough. Would you remain standing? As we pray one more time. Father, would you enable 
the preaching of your word to be done in the power of the Holy Spirit? And would you enable the hearing of your word to be done in the power of the Spirit as well? I know my own weakness in preaching your word. I also know our weakness in hearing. Father, we can uh, become dull in our hearts and unaffected. So would you allow your word to be like a seed that is deeply rooted in our hearts, bearing the fruit of faith and obedience and love for Christ in our lives. Pray this for our good and for his glory, and in his name, amen. You may be seated. The last few weeks, I've been reading a novel that I think has actually been bad for my health. It's a historical fiction work set in the time of World War II. The, the plot of the book is that a man is sneaking into a concentration camp in order to try to get out of that camp a physicist who would come back to the States and help the development of the atomic bomb. But every time in the book, when it looks like things are going to work out okay, it seems that things get more complex and difficult. Something goes wrong that you didn't see coming, or what's most frustrating is they make decisions that make the task even more difficult, which already seemed impossible. And so with every chapter that I've been reading this book, I felt my frustration, my anxiety, my blood pressure on the rise. I need a footnote every couple of pages just telling me this thing's going to end up okay. Well, that's kind of how you can feel, I think, when you get to chapter 22 of Luke's gospel. Dale Ralph Davis compares this section of Luke's gospel. He says, it's as if you've been walking down the road that is paved with asphalt, and all of a sudden you step on crushed gravel pathway. You don't even have to see that the road has changed. You can just feel it under your feet. It's the same way here. By the time you get to Luke's gospel, you can just feel, uh, chapter 22, you can just feel that the intensity is increasing. It's as if every decision comes with, with greater weight and greater consequences. Every moment feels more weighty. And really, as this chapter begins, it finally feels like everything is going wrong. It can feel like the enemy has finally gotten the upper hand. To this point, the chief priest and the scribes have wanted Jesus dead. This isn't anything new that we find in chapter 22. They've wanted Jesus dead for a long time. The problem is there's always been an obstacle in front of them, some reason why they couldn't get to Jesus, couldn't kill him. Well, when you begin chapter 22, that obstacle is still there. They're afraid of the crowds. After all, the crowds have heard Jesus' teaching. They've seen Jesus' miracles. They've, they've seen him do amazing things. So the chief priests and scribes think it's, it's really impossible for us to just approach Jesus in the midst of a crowd and try to wrestle him away and take him and seize him because, well, the crowds may well turn against us and take us out. And so it looks like one more time the enemy's attempts are thwarted. And then Luke tells us something happened. Satan, we're told, entered into Judas Iscariot, one of the 12 who were following Jesus. Now, undoubtedly, Satan enters Judas as Judas has a heart that is driven toward evil. And so Judas is not uh, a mere puppet here, right? He has a desire to, to perform evil, and Satan through him is going to ensure this evil is carried out. And he goes to the chief priest and the scribes, and he has a solution to their problem. They've been unable to catch Jesus in a private place, but now here is one of Jesus' own followers, one who, who knows his path, who can find a time when Jesus certainly is going to be by himself, simply with them, no crowds around, and they can get him then. The chief priests and the scribes, of course, love the plan. They're willing to pay Judas for it. And all of a sudden, Judas is going to betray Jesus. It looks like, finally, the enemy has the upper hand. At every turn to this point, it's always seemed like Jesus has had the upper hand. In every single exchange, he's outwitted his enemies at every turn. And now, finally, for the first time, it looks like things are beginning to spin out of control. 
you may approach Luke 22 thinking it feels as if the enemy now himself has the upper hand, as if Satan himself is finally going to win. And yet it's at this very point that Luke, I think, sows a very clear thread throughout these 38 verses, saying to us again and again and again, Jesus is utterly in control. In fact, I think there are two themes that Luke highlights for us in Luke 22, 1 through 38. One of them is Jesus' control over all things. The other is Jesus' love for and care for his disciples. So those are going to be the two points that I want to, uh, for us to focus on in the sermon. I'll take them one at a time. We'll begin with looking at Jesus' control over all things. As I said, at the end of verse 6, that's the very point where you feel like Jesus has finally lost the upper hand, as if he's not the one in control. The chief priest and scribes consent. Judas seeks an opportunity to betray him in the absence of the crowd. Yet it's at this very point that Luke begins to show us that Jesus is in absolute control. The first way we see it is by Jesus establishing where they will eat the Passover meal. The Passover uh, meal was a, a time that Jesus wanted to eat privately with his disciples. It would be a meal that was eaten once a year. Historically, at this point, it was a meal where they would look back and remember what the Lord did when he rescued the Israelites out of Egypt. So the disciples would have anticipated this meal, and sure enough, the day comes when Jesus says to Peter and John, the time has come. Go and prepare the place where we're going to have the meal. Which, of course, raises a question from them. That question is in verse 9. They said to him, where will you have us prepare it? Now, if you're Judas at this point, imagine what an opportunity this is. You're trying to get the chief priest and scribes to be able to approach Jesus in the absence of a crowd. Well, now he's about to eat a meal in the privacy of a room somewhere with only his disciples. If there's ever a time that would be ideal for them to sneak in and confiscate Jesus, this would be the moment. So when Peter and John asked Jesus, where is it that we're going to have this meal? You can imagine Judas, you know, maybe looking like an innocent bystander there, but kind of leaning in, right? I'd like to hear this myself. I can relate to others. And sure enough, Jesus gives the answer out loud where Judas can hear it. But note what he says, verse 10. He said to them, Behold, when you've entered the city, a man carrying a jar of water will meet you. Follow him into the house that he enters. Tell the master of the house, the teacher says to you, Where is the guest room that I may eat the Passover with my disciples? And he will show you a large upper room furnished. Prepare it there. In other words, there's no way Judas can relay this to anyone. Right? Jesus doesn't say, You know where old Joe has his store? It's that room right there. Right? If he said that, Judas could relay it. Instead, Peter and John don't even know where they're going until they get into the city. This may seem like a minor detail, but even the preparation of the location of where they're going to have the meal is done in such a way to keep Judas in ignorance because it is simply not time yet for Jesus to die. Jesus was supposed to share this meal with his disciples. But it's not only there in the preparation of the meal that we see Jesus' control of all things. Even in the meal itself, by the time we get to verse 14, they're now uh, in the upper room. Jesus is sharing the meal with his disciples, and, and I will go into detail in a, a little bit on, on some of the things he says to them, but one thing that I want you to note right off the bat is how Jesus talks about his death. He takes the elements of the meal, um, bread and some wine, and he begins to speak of these elements in terms of his body and his blood. But, but note what he says in verse 19, and then again in verse 20. In verse 19, he took the bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and gave it to them, saying, This is my body, which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And then again in verse 20. And likewise, the cup, after they had eaten, saying, This cup is poured out for you is the new covenant in my blood. In other words, Jesus doesn't speak of his upcoming death 
as if it's simply going to happen, as if it's just some accident, as if Jesus is saying, they've finally gotten me, and they're going to take me out. No, he speaks of his death as if it's something he's doing for a specific purpose. I am giving my body for you. I am shedding my blood, pouring it out for you. In other words, Jesus is sending to them a clear reminder. When I die, know that it is a purposeful decision on my part. I'm giving it for you. But it's not only there that we see Jesus' control. Because Judas is in the room with him as well. And Jesus makes clear to Judas that he knows everything that's going on with him. In verses 21 and 22, Jesus says, But behold, the hand of him who betrays me is with me on the table. For the Son of Man goes as it has been determined. But woe to that man by whom he is betrayed. In other words, if at this point Judas has thought, I've pulled all of this off behind Jesus' back and he knows nothing of it, Jesus makes clear that's not the case. I, I know exactly who's betraying me. He's right here at the table with me. Jesus knew that Judas would betray him. But not only that, he informs Judas, what you're doing is simply part of the purpose and plan of God. Because the Son of Man goes as it has been determined. That's the language he uses, as it has been determined. Again, all of this is happening in accord with God's predetermined plan. This is exactly how the disciples would continue to talk about Jesus' death. Remember in Acts 4, 27 and 28, when the disciples are praying after having been threatened and beaten and persecuted? They gather and they pray together, and in that prayer they say, For truly in this city there were gathered together against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the peoples of Israel, to do whatever your hand and your plan had predestined to take place. The cross was no accident. Every element going on was happening exactly in accord with God's purpose and plan. Now, certainly, that doesn't eliminate responsibility. Remember the end of verse 22. As Jesus says, but woe to that man by whom he is betrayed. Uh, the word woe is a word used to denote condemnation, judgment. When, when Isaiah sees the Lord in Isaiah 6, high and lifted up, the holy, holy, holy God, and he says, woe is me. This is not some kind of just explanation of, well, I'm overwhelmed. No, when he says, woe is me, he's denoting, I think I'm bearing condemnation. I think I'm ready for the judgment of God because I'm an unholy man in the midst of the holy God. When Jesus then says, woe to the man by whom he is betrayed, he is saying this man will face judgment for his sins. The judgment that he will bear in his betrayal of the Holy Son of God. But again, notice how clear his death has purpose. No one will take his life from him. He's laying it down for them. In Judas' betrayal, we may feel like at this point, if you're just a reader, without this section, well, Judas is in control. Or the chief priests and scribes are finally in control. Or Satan himself is in control. And Jesus makes clear, no, 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 I'm in control. I know exactly who's betraying me. I know exactly what's going on. And all of this is happening as it has been determined. Again, just as a side note here, it could be no other way. If the cross is a mere accident of history, or if God is, is jumping in, at the last minute to kind of wrestle this terrible situation that's happened and trying to work it for our good, then the Bible just makes no sense. The cross is an expression of God's love for his people. It's a, him glorifying his son. It is his work of salvation for us, and therefore it is the predetermined plan of God. Again, at the very moment where you feel like this cannot be in Jesus' control, he makes it absolutely clear that it is. But it's not even just here that we see Jesus stressing control. We also see him showing his control in his interaction with Peter, which begins in verse 31. 
In verse 31, Jesus says to Peter, Simon, Simon, behold, Satan demanded to have you, that he might sift you like wheat. But I have prayed for you that your faith may not fail. And when you have turned again, strengthen your brothers. Peter, of course, answered in the kind of bravado we might anticipate. Peter said to him, Lord, I'm ready to go with you both to prison and to death. Jesus answers him in verse 34, I tell you, Peter, the rooster will not crow this day until you deny three times that you know me. Now again, just, just note what's going on here, what Jesus acknowledges. When he says in verse 31, Simon, Simon, behold, Satan has demanded to have you that he might sift you, that you there is plural. I grew up in western Kentucky. I now live in West Tennessee. Let me say it this way. That you is a y'all, right? <laughs> Satan has demanded to sift y'all, Jesus says, right? He's coming after all of you. So what's going to happen is this. Jesus is going to be taken and arrested. In that very moment, his followers, who should be there supporting him, are going to scatter. And Peter, when questioned three times, surely you're one of his followers, surely you know him, three different times, Peter is going to deny him. Satan has demanded to sift them, and oh boy, is he going to highlight and show their fragile, weak character and natures. Once more, when that event plays out, if there's ever a time you might feel like, good grief, now the enemy definitely has the upper hand. Surely this is spiraling out of Jesus' control. But remember, before those events ever happened, Right here in the upper room, Jesus not only says to Simon, this is what the enemy is doing, but, but he says, Satan has demanded, that is, Satan has requested. All of this cannot happen except by the permission of God. First of all, Jesus is saying, Satan is like one who is on leash. Oh, he is much greater than us, but he is nothing compared to the Almighty God. And nothing that the enemy does toward us or against us can happen outside of the Lord's control. But not only that, Jesus notes to Peter, you're going to deny me. When this happens, this is not happening apart from my knowledge. This is something that, that you're going to do that I know of. And yet, Jesus also declares to him, but your perseverance is also in my control. I've prayed for you. Jesus says that your faith may not fail you. In other words, Peter, this is not going to be the end of you. Yes, in that moment, your knees will buckle. You will deny three times that you know me, but I've prayed for you. And Jesus' prayers are effective. We might even say, looking at verses 31 and 34, in the very moment that the enemy might be celebrating as the midst of Peter denying that he knows Jesus and the other disciples scattering and scrambling, in that moment when Satan is thinking so well of himself, you and I know the prayers of our Lord Jesus Christ are much more powerful than him. And the prayers of our Lord Jesus Christ were for Peter that his faith would not fail. That is, that this denial would not lead to an ultimate rejection of Christ, but he would persevere, that he would be preserved by his Lord. As we sang earlier, that Christ would hold him fast. And so Jesus speaks of it. Not only have I prayed that your faith may not fail, but Peter, when you turn, that is, you're going to repent. You're going to turn around. And when you do, strengthen your brothers. He tells Peter, you're going to be one who will lead them and encourage them. And is this a comfort to us as well? Just as the Lord holds Peter in his hand so that as he is in control of his faith and will not let it fail, so he is in control of our lives as well. He controls our hearts, and will not let us fail either. Again, at every moment when it looks like things are going wrong, Jesus reminds us that he is in control. And one final way he does that is in verses 35 to 38. In verses 35 to 38, it's, it's an interesting text. Uh, Jesus begins by asking them in verse 35, when I sent you with no money bags or knapsacks or sandals, did you lack anything? And they said, Nothing. As Jesus reminds them, there was a time earlier when he sent them out, and when he sent them out, they were received warmly, not in every house, but in some houses. Uh, that was 
somewhat of an easy mission, we might say. They went out in an area that wasn't necessarily hostile to them. But Jesus tells them in verse 36, but things are going to change. He said to them, but now let the one who has a money bag take it, and likewise a knapsack, and let the one who has no sword sell his cloak and buy one. For I tell you that the scripture must be fulfilled in me. And he was numbered with the transgressors. For what is written about me has its fulfillment. And they said, look, Lord, here are two swords. And he said to them, it is enough. Now, this can be very confusing to us because it may look like Jesus is saying, here's what I want you to do. I want you to get swords, and as you go out there and find any opposition, I want you to slay people. As if Jesus is sending his disciples on a mission of literally conquering his enemies. But we know that's not the case. Because only a little bit later, in chapter 22, verse 51, Peter will take a sword. And he will swing it, cutting off the Roman's ear. And Jesus will rebuke him, saying, no more of this. So what's going on here? What's going on when, when, when they reach over and say, Jesus, here are two swords. And Jesus says, it's enough. It may be, in fact, a better translation of this may be simply enough. As if Jesus is saying, you're missing the point of what I'm saying. He's not telling them, literally, you're going to have to arm yourself with swords because I want you to go kill people. Rather, it seems that what Jesus is saying is, from this point forward, you're going to encounter great hostility. From this point forward, I'm going to send you out into a world of enemy-occupied territory. You see, Jesus says what must be fulfilled about you and about me is true, that he was numbered with the transgressors. That comes at the very end of that Isaiah 53 text that Ted read earlier. Jesus is saying... This is not going to end with people, all kinds of people, the multitude of people looking and thinking that Jesus is a hero. They're going to identify him with the transgressors. He's going to be hanged on a Roman cross, bleeding and suffocating there in his own blood, dying as one who is looked at as a blasphemer, worthy of death. And consequently, Jesus is telling them, if they've treated your master, me, that way, they will persecute you as well. And yet he tells them again and again and again as he warns them of this, for I tell you that the scripture must be fulfilled, or, or what is written about me has its fulfillment. Again, even what he's warning them of is a warning as he reminds them, and I'm in control. The Bible will be fulfilled. Now think about this later. Let's just fast forward a little bit. It is going to be true. Everything Jesus told them will happen. They will go out and they will bear witness to Christ among the nations. And as they do so, they will be opposed. They will encounter great hostility. They will be persecuted. We read earlier a part of the prayer from Acts 4. That prayer happens because they're persecuted. And yet when that event happens, when that persecution takes place, they can remind themselves Jesus told us explicitly, this is what would happen. In accordance with what the Scripture has said, they can mind themselves in a very explicit way. The one who sends us out into this enemy-occupied territory is the one who said to us, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. The one who sends us out as sheep in the midst of wolves has all authority in heaven and on earth. Again, he is in control. Even when we face hostility, he is the one in power. We see this even when we die. Think of the scene in Revelation 6. The martyrs are before the throne and they're, and they're saying to the Lord, how long until you avenge us? Right? How long until you bring judgment on the earth? And they are told, rest a little longer before that day of judgment comes. But specifically, they're told, rest a little longer, quote, Revelation 6, 11, until the number of their fellow servants and their brothers should be complete, who were to be killed as they themselves had been. Do you hear that? In other words, even when believers shed our own blood to the point of death, that is not somehow a suggestion that the Lord Jesus Christ is no longer in control. 
Rather, he says, I have an appointed number of you that will die for my sake. I've determined a number of my children, Jesus is saying, will sign my testimony with their blood. And that is part of my plan. To honor myself, to make much of Christ in this world. So throughout this chapter, one of the themes that we clearly see is Jesus' control over all things. In, the, in a chapter that begins where you finally feel like things are spiraling out of control, the enemy is getting out of their hand, Luke makes clear, not so fast. Jesus is utterly in control. Which brings us to the second thread we see in the text. Jesus' love and care for his disciples. Jesus' love and care for his disciples. The first place we see this is in that upper room. If you look back to verses 14 through 23. First, as Jesus begins to eat with them, we read in verse 15, and he said to them, I have earnestly desired to eat this Passover meal with you before I suffer. For I tell you, I will not eat of it until it's fulfilled in the kingdom of God. And so he took the cup when he had given thanks, said, take this, divide it among yourselves. For I tell you that from now on, I will not drink of the fruit of the vine until the kingdom of God comes. Jesus says, I'm eating of this meal with you now, and I will not eat it again with you until the day when Christ returns. We are raised, and we eat there the marriage supper of the Lamb with him. But even note that subtle note there in verse 15. I've earnestly desired to eat this Passover meal with you before I suffer. I think that's something we can quickly skip over. For, for, for me, I know... I can kind of have this feeling in my heart that Jesus should be always frustrated with his disciples, as if they're like a necessary evil in his life. You know, like someone who has a dog that's not obedient, and so they keep taking the dog out, doing stuff with the dog, but the whole time they're going, stupid dog. Kind of get the feeling, right? We see all of their blunders, all of their bumbling around, all of their foolishness, and you kind of get the feeling that Jesus is going, oh, good grief. How long till this is over? And yet, Jesus says here, I've earnestly desired to eat this meal with you. In John's gospel, John says in John chapter 13, that the prefatory note John gives is, is that Jesus loves his disciples. And then it leads into this meal. Jesus, when he says this, he's not throwaway words. He's being sincere here. He earnestly desired. He enjoyed his people. He loved them. But if you say, well, Lee, maybe you're loading too much into that note that Jesus earnestly desired to meet with them. I mean, it doesn't necessarily reflect his love for them. I think it does, but fine. What we see happen in the meal itself clearly reflects this. As Jesus continues on in verse 19, he took the bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and gave it to them, saying, this is my body which is given for you, do this in remembrance of me. And likewise, the cup after they had eaten, saying, uh, this cup is poured out for you as the new covenant in my blood. Now, I think we know it's no surprise. Well, Jesus' language here has led many to kind of a wrong-headed thinking about the elements. So the Roman Catholic Church, for example, uh, thinks that the elements themselves uh, are turning into the, the body and blood of Christ. Other uh, Lutherans do weird stuff with this as well. And the reason they do that is because Jesus says, as he holds the bread, this is my body. And so they go, how could that be any clearer? And I kind of want to go, yeah. Imagine, I, I don't do this anymore because we have phones, but a number of years ago, when my kids were little, in fact, I may have only had the first couple in my wallet, I had a sleeve, a clear sleeve, where I had pictures of my children when they were younger. So I could be somewhere, I could be standing right here, and pull out my wallet, open it up to that sleeve, and say, this is my son. And I don't think any of you would rush out to dial the Department of Child Services because you want to tell them, Lee's carrying around his children in a sleeve in his wallet. They're going to suffocate for crying out loud. No. All of you know, it is clear as the day is long. When I say, this is my son, you know I'm showing you a picture that represents my son. That is precisely what Jesus is saying here. When he holds up the bread, 
this is my body. They're not going, I thought he was right there. Now he's right there. <laughs> of course not, right? They're understanding this represents your body. And if you want to press it literally, then you're going to have a little more trouble when you get to verse 20 because Jesus doesn't say, this cup is my blood. He says, this cup that is poured out for you is the new covenant in my blood. Well, I thought the new covenant was a, was a, a promise God made that he would forgive his people of their sins and, and give them new hearts and put his spirit in them and cause them to walk in his ways. I didn't know it was literally a cup. Well, of course it's not, right? Jesus is saying, this cup filled with the fruit of the vine represents my blood, the new covenant promises that are sealed because I'm going to shed my blood for you. Jesus is showing them in both situations, the bread and the cup both represent his body, represent his blood. But what's key for us is that Jesus, again, is making very clear it is being poured out for you. It's being given for you. Jesus' death is a clear expression of his love for his people. In fact, there is no other clear expression. It doesn't matter what's happened in your life that makes you feel loved by God. And I hope much has. I hope throughout every single day, you and I have situations happen where we go, good grief, this just makes me, reminds me again of how loved I am by God. But I'll say this, everything in your life that reminds you of his love for you is second. The clear expression of his love for you seen in the cross. If you ever doubt God's love for you, you don't have to look at any events in your day today. You can simply remember that Jesus Christ laid down his life for you. I, I know in my earlier days in the Christian life, I, was, I, I kind of viewed the Bible and the world as if it were very Lee-centered, right? As if everything revolved around me and everything was about me and, and God was doing everything for me. And then, and then, and then I understood as I grew in the faith and, and it was given to, to, to good teaching and, and read the scriptures, that Jesus Christ himself is at the center of all things. God is exalting his son so that he might be glorified. That's where all of history is going. And yet, it does not mean when we rightly understand that, that somehow it excludes the idea that Jesus Christ dies because he loves us. Think of the way that the Bible continually speaks of the cross. Jesus is identified in Romans 1.5 to his churches as to him who loves us and has freed us from our sins by his blood. Or think of what Paul says in Galatians 2.20. He speaks of the Son as the one who loved me and gave himself for me. What does Romans 5, 8-10 tell us? That, that, that God demonstrates his love for us. And that while we were enemies, Christ died for us. Or even John 3.16. God loved the world in this way, that he sent his son to die. Yes, yes, Jesus Christ lives and dies and is raised to the glory of God. Amen. And part of the way that he glorifies his father is by dying in an expression of his love for us. And so here at the table, in the midst of Luke showing us through Christ's words that Jesus is in control, along the same lines, at the same time, another rail that parallels that one is Jesus is reminding his disciples that he loves them. We even see that in the argument that takes place starting in verse 24. In verse 24, we're told a dispute arose among them as to which of them was to be regarded as the greatest. Now, what makes this terrible is that it seems that what's precipitated that conversation is what Jesus says to them in verses 22 and 23, namely that he is going to be betrayed by one of them. So that in verse 23, they begin to question one another, which one of them was going to do this? Now, you can imagine this is a pretty low moment. I mean, Jesus is looking at his disciples whom he's invested in for years, who, who have labored alongside of him, who have walked alongside of him, for whom he has done everything. And now he's announcing, one of you is going to betray me. If there was ever a time to kind of be a bit sensitive, maybe sit with your mouth shut for a bit, you would think this is it. But the disciples have other plans. They begin to talk amongst themselves as to which one it was going to be. And somehow becomes a conversation about which one of them is the greatest. 
Now, I've thought about it a bit. I actually think I can come up with a scenario where this actually works. You can imagine the conversation being like this. Uh-oh, good grief, one of us is going to betray him. Maybe it's you. And that guy saying, me? Are you kidding? Maybe it's Peter. Me? I was present on the Mount of Transfiguration. It's not me. Maybe John. Right? And John's like, crazy, I was there with you. Right? And then, and then somebody, well, what about him? And all of a sudden, in, in, in terms of defending themselves, becomes exalting themselves. Couldn't be me. You guys see how impressed Jesus is with me, right? And so on and so on and so on the conversation goes until now all of a sudden they've left behind completely this idea that the Savior is going to be betrayed and they're simply focused on which one of them is best. Now, if there's ever a time you would think that Jesus would go, enough is enough, guys. I'm done with you, right? Just leave me alone, right? Get out of the room. But he doesn't. Amazingly, watch what he does. In verses 25 and 26 and 27, he does give them an alternative vision for greatness. He says to them in verse 25, the kings of the Gentiles exercise lordship over them. Those in authority rule over them are called benefactors, but not so with you. That is, you don't need to think of greatness the same way that greatness is thought of in this age. Rather, let the greatest among you become the youngest and the leaders, the one who serves for who is greater, the one who reclines at table or the one who serves. This is not the one who reclines, and yet... Jesus says, but I'm among you as the one who serves. Jesus is giving them another model. If you really want to strive for greatness, don't strive for greatness in this age. Strive for greatness in the age to come. And if you want to strive for greatness in the age to come, the way to do it in this age is to serve. If any of you, this is, it reminds us, doesn't it, of the C.S. Lewis quote, where Lewis says, uh, the Lord does not find our ambitions too strong, but too weak. Many of us are content with striving for greatness here. And we would rather not be the one who serves so that we might have greatness there. So Jesus does correct them. He gives them another lens. But again, at this point, if there's ever a time for Jesus just to look at his disciples and say, you guys are the worst, this would be it. And yet, notice what he does in verse 28. You are those who have stayed with me in my trials. Instead of writing them off, instead of dismissing them, instead of kind of pointing the finger at their weakness, at their bumbling ways and exposing them, driving them to the wall, see you are no good. Instead, these individuals who have just been talking about which one of them is the greatest in the midst of him denouncing he's going to be betrayed, Jesus says to them a word of praise. You are those who stayed with me. He's not focusing on, you're the ones who seem to make a wrong statement at every turn, as you have just done. But you're those who have stayed with me in my trials. And I assign to you, as my Father assigned to me, a kingdom, that you may eat and drink at my table in my kingdom and sit on thrones judging the 12 tribes of Israel. At the point where you and I think Jesus should write them off, tell them how bad they are, and destroy them. Instead, he praises them. You persevered with me, and you're going to be blessed in my kingdom. You're going to have a place of honor. Isn't this just a picture of the Lord's care and love and grace for his people? Because in so many ways, this is a picture of you and me. I mean, how many times do we think in the midst of our bumbling that the Lord should finally say to us, you are the absolute worst. I'm done with you. And instead, a bruised reed he does not break. But he deals with us gently. He encourages us. He blesses us. He gives us things, not that we deserve, but utterly beyond what we deserve. This is who our God is is. Even in his interaction with Peter that we've already looked at, it's just a constant reminder of his grace and love. Peter, you're going to deny me again if there's ever an opportunity for Jesus to say, so let's make the focus of our conversation for the next few minutes, how bad you are. What a jerk, right? But instead, Jesus says, 
Peter, you're going to deny me, but here's what I want to focus on. I've prayed for you. I'm going to preserve you in your faith. You're going to turn and strengthen your brothers. You're going to be used mightily by me in my kingdom. Again, just a picture of his grace and his love. Even as he prepares them for what's to come, you, you, no longer are you going to go out, right, without a money sack or knapsack or without swords, but rather you're going to encounter hostility. Even all of this, it seems to me, is a reminder by him that he loves them. Doesn't it seem that there's a subtle hint when he asks them, when I sent you out without money bag, without knapsack, without sandals, did you lack anything? And they said, no, a reminder that he provided for them. Don't you think that there's a subtle reminder here then as well? When he says, now you're going to go out into a world that's going to be vastly different. They've numbered me with the transgressors. They're going to identify you in the same way and persecute you. And yet there, I think, is another hint. But just as I provided for you before in that circumstance, I'll provide for you in this one. In other words, Luke shows us in 22, 1 through 38, that the one who is in control of all things... The one who has no authority outside of him, the one who has all authority in heaven and on earth. No authority outside of him, nobody has, except he gives them the authority. Jesus has all authority. And that one is the one who loves us and who has given himself for us, who loves us and has freed us from our sins by his blood. It can feel, feel like in your life and in mine as well, the same way the beginning of Luke 22 feels. No doubt, perhaps you can look around right now and say, it feels like my life is spinning out of control. It feels like the enemy has gotten the upper hand. I mean, we talked about local things earlier as we had our time of uh, corporate prayer as John led us in that prayer, but we're not too far removed, are we, from a time when a shooter went into a Christian school just two hours down the road. What do we think when we live in a world where that happens? Is it that the enemy has the upper hand? No. We remind ourselves that Jesus Christ has all authority. He reigns over all from heaven, and the one who reigns cares for us and loves us. It may well be that we die. It may well be that we are among those in Revelation 6 whom Jesus says, the complete number of your brothers who must shed their blood has not been fulfilled. It may be that we're numbered among them. But if that day comes, it won't be because the enemy got the upper hand. It's going to be because our Lord who has absolute control and loves us has determined these are the days that I've written for them and how they will glorify me. And as those days come, don't doubt his control and don't doubt his love. I mentioned before that in John's parallel text, in John 13, John frames this text in terms of Jesus' love for his disciples. Specifically, here's how John 13 begins. Now before the feast of the Passover, when Jesus knew that his hour had come to depart out of this world to the Father, having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. He loved them all the way to the cross. He loves us even now. And his love for us is part of the driving reason why one day he will come back and take us so that where he is, there we may be also. And so this morning, what should our response be then to a reminder that the one who controls all things and who loves us, the one who lived and died and was raised for us so that we might repent of our sins and place our faith in him and have eternal life, what is our response to him? No doubt it is for us to love him. The scripture makes explicitly clear we love him because he first loved us. Well, this is a reminder that he loves us. Our response, no doubt, must also be to devote ourselves to Him. Why would you devote yourself to any other thing when we have a Savior who is in absolute control and loves us? And then we must trust Him. Why would we not when He reigns and He loves us? And so this morning, we're also going to partake of this meal that, that Jesus established that night when he took the Passover elements and said, from now on, this is redefined. No longer will you eat the bread and drink from the cup and, and eat this meal and remember what the Lord did when he brought you out of Egypt. 
From now on, you'll eat this meal and you'll remember what I have done for you in giving my body and shedding my blood. For us this morning, it's an opportunity for us as we eat and drink to visibly declare before the Lord, we love you, we devote ourselves to you, and we trust you by your grace. Now, if you're not a believer this morning, as much as I've spoken about the love of Christ for his people, I want you to know that if you've not repented of your sins and placed your faith in the one who lived and died and was raised for us, that right now you're actually under the judgment of God, awaiting the day when the Lord will pour out his wrath on his enemies. And so I want to plead with you, reminding you that you do not have to die in your sins and face his judgment. Instead, this morning, you can repent of your sins, place your faith, place your trust in the one Jesus Christ who lived and died and was raised, and you can have forgiveness of sins and eternal life. If you would like to talk to me or someone sitting beside you about that more, we would love to talk to you. And then I'm going to encourage you, if indeed you place your faith in Christ, to make that public by being baptized, a a visible act that shows that, that you have received Christ's word and call to you. And then once you've done that, We're going to invite you to the table week by week, whereby we continue to show in this visible demonstration we've heard the word of Christ. And again, our answer is yes and amen. So if you're not a believer, I want to plead with you to place your faith in Christ. If you are a believer, you've professed your faith in Christ publicly, you're a member in good standing with a gospel-preaching church, I want to encourage you to join us at the table. The way we're going to come, we're going to take a moment of silence The moment of silence does have practical benefit for us. It just gives us a time for the musicians to come forward, get in place, the pastors to get in place. It also, though, I think has a practical benefit for all of us, perhaps giving us a time, as we've heard this word to pause, maybe for a time of brief prayer, asking the Lord to give grace so that we might respond to his word in a way that honors him. And then we're going to come to the table. There'll be a pastor here, a pastor here, one over here. Each section, you'll come around, uh, each row to the outside coming around, you'll pick up one stack of two cups. The bottom one will have bread, the top one will have juice, and then you'll return to your seat coming to the inside of the row. The second will follow, third row will follow, so on and so forth, until we all have the bread and the cup, and then we will remember his body, remember his blood, and give thanks to the one who loved us and gave himself for us. So let's take a moment of silence now as we prepare to come to the table this morning.